Hey, thanks for checking out the Blake Bins podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Amanda Echegoyen, who's the COO over at Community Clinic here in Northwest Arkansas. We talk a lot about leadership and management, especially at scale, and what does it mean to really lead a successful team. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. As always, feel free to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. And of course, let me know what you think, Blake at goodadvicecoaching.com. Enjoy this episode, and I will catch you later. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Blake Benz Podcast. Today, we have a special guest on the show. I am sitting down with Amanda Echegoyen, who is the COO at Community Clinic. She is passionate about healthcare. She's a, she is passionate about helping people live healthier lives and has a pretty compelling mission around that. And she's also uh, quite the expert in leadership and ethics. She got her master's in that topic. Amanda, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Blake. I'm happy to be here. All right. So, hey, we are sitting down. We, we've grabbed a cup of coffee before at a uh, connection with Stephanie Medford over at Ronald McDonald House and just started talking. And I was like, okay, this person would be really fun to come on the podcast and just pick your brain a little bit. So that's really flattering. Thank okay. you. <laughs> I feel like I've learned a lot and I have a lot of valuable experience that I have gleaned from several years of experience in, in the healthcare management world mm. that I'm glad to be able to share with others. Healthcare feels like a, um, I don't know why healthcare feels like such a, I don't know if hot button topic is the right word to describe it, but it feels like feels like everyone, you know, you have all these little things you can, you can talk about, but healthcare especially, and I don't know if it's because, you know, um, there was so much political drama is probably the right word around healthcare in the past, in this, this presidency and the last one, but it, it feels like when we talk healthcare, people get anxious and especially a friend of mine runs a health insurance brokerage. He really, the people he talks to get, they get, they seem to get really nervous. And what am I talking out of here? Is that, is that? familiar to you? Do you, can you? It absolutely is. There are so many facets of the healthcare industry that do make people really anxious because there are a lot of unknowns about healthcare. Health insurance companies have really moved more towards value-based care, or they are in the process of moving towards value-based care. So instead of volume, instead of a provider's office, creating a lot of volume and a lot of visits, really people are starting to look at how can we pay you and how can we reimburse you for value and for outcomes. And certainly that makes people anxious because it's a different way from how we've done things in the past. Mm. And certainly there are a lot of different perspectives about health insurance and who should have it, who should qualify for it, how you should have to go through a process to get it. So certainly it can become really politically charged, mm. which is a shame because mm. – it's foundational. Healthcare is really the foundation of a vibrant, healthy, productive community. And so it's a shame that we have to focus on politics and, you mm -hmm. know, the fear and anxiety that sometimes people have about healthcare instead of focus on focusing on creating health. Mm -hmm. And it's weird to me. And I, you know, it's funny because I always joke with people I talk to that I have, I have listeners from all over the political spectrum. So I can, in today's outrage culture, I can always know that I'm probably offending someone, which is fine. But uh, it, it's I love what you just said about there's certain things that it feels like they shouldn't be issues, and yet they are. 
you know? And they it's- are. They are. You know, the great thing about working in the community health center world, so Community Clinic is a community health center, and so we have a federal designation as a federally qualified health center, and we have really broad support from both sides of, of the political spectrum. Everyone supports quality, affordable health care. And everyone supports the access that community health centers nationwide provide to our patients. So that's the great thing about my my little niche of the healthcare world is that we really do have some broad support and can be generally appealing to everyone on both sides of the aisle. This is something very unique. And maybe we need to send you to D.C. (laughs) What you just told me is that you have agreement on both sides of the aisle, which is unheard of, it feels like. Today. Yeah, yeah. And community health centers, you know, there are over 1300 community health centers in the United States. And collectively, we serve over 28 million patients. And so this isn't, you know, just something in our community of Northwest Arkansas, not just something in our state, it is nationwide. And historically, since community health centers began in the 1950s, we've really had strong bipartisan support. So wow. again, Great, great area of the healthcare world to be in. Well, I'm just, I already, I mean, I was already excited for you to be here, but now I'm like, you know, levels of exponential. I'm, I'm much more excited now in the sense of anytime I hear about someone who's found the magic of helping people really rally behind something, especially, especially in today's culture, that is something really worth digging into because it's so rare now. When yes. people like, oh, wait, you guys agree? Like we yes. <laughs> we can actually agree on something here. And so I, I'd like to back up just a little bit because um, I kind of jumped right in there talking about what you do. I want to know a little bit about who you are, um, what, what got you into our Northwest Arkansas area. And really, because uh, part of what I like to do for my listeners is, so I have a guy who's coming on later this week who's a phenomenal guy. But he said, oh, I'm not nearly as far along as the people who come on your your show, which is funny to me. Because I feel like the people who come on the show, they themselves would be like, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just figuring this out. Yeah, we're just normal people learning yeah. things, new things every day. Yeah, and so that's what I try to help people understand is that these really incredible people that maybe feel really distant in terms of where they are professionally, helping them understand, okay, this is what the real journey has been like. So talk to me a little bit about what that's been like for you. Sure, sure, absolutely. So I grew up in a small town in central Arkansas. My dad is a family practice physician, and my mom is a nurse. So healthcare has just kind of always been a part of my life. Um, I got to see my dad serving a rural community that um, didn't always have the resources to pay him for his services. And he still provided them with compassionate care. Mm-hmm. And um, so that really inspired me. And, you know, when you're in high school and you tell someone that you want to work in the healthcare field or in the medical field, they say, okay, go to medical school. Hmm. No one ever really talks to you about the other options in the healthcare industry as far as careers go. So I I graduated from high school, um, started college as a biology major <laughs> and did okay in biology, did okay in the math classes. And it was chemistry that, that, just made me break down in tears each and every day. And I thought, okay, this is not for me. I can't do this. There's got to be something else in healthcare that I can do and still, still be in that industry without becoming a doctor. Mm. Um, so backing up just a little bit, my dad, as a physician, 
went on medical mission trips during my whole childhood. And so when I was a teenager, he started taking me with him. And um, I went to Mexico a few times, Honduras a few times, and helped with with medical clinics in very small developing communities in those countries. What was that experience like? It was it was really truly amazing. Um, I spoke a little bit of Spanish at the time, so ended up doing a lot of communicating and, and interpreting for the providers and the patient. But really, what what really caught my attention about the whole process was organizing it and was setting it up and was, you know, coordinating the flow of how patients would flow through the clinic, Mm. how they would visit a dentist, how they would visit the pharmacy. Um, And so later in life, after I realized that me and chemistry were not friends, (laughs) um, I truly started to realize, oh, healthcare administration Healthcare operations is a career, and that's what I always liked to do. That was always the thing that caught my attention about these trips. Um, so fortunately, it, it is a thing. It is a career, and I did find that that's really an interest and a passion and um, a strong suit of mine. Mm. So um, in college, I ended up getting my degree in Spanish and Latin American studies because I liked that. And um didn't really have a great plan as far as what I was going to do with that degree, uh, but fell into the healthcare administration world like I always wanted to. Um, got my master's in leadership and ethics, which was really a wonderful complement to healthcare administration. And here I am. Yeah. Well, I, and you know, it's, I loved it's, I think you're so right in picking up on the operations side of really, really anything that's, that's worth doing. Right. And I, it's, it's almost like I feel like I talk to a lot of nonprofits who they are um, very empathetic and passionate about what they want to accomplish. And yet there is no structure. There's no process. There's no, and, and it's, and it's, I think it's a tough pill to swallow and understanding that you can't will your organization to succeed just on empathy alone. There has to be a strategic way we go about doing this. Absolutely. Hope is not a strategy. And um, really, you know, operational um, processes, procedures, mm-hmm. and um, that strong infrastructure, mm-hmm. really, of how you're going to deliver your service, no matter what it is, is mm-hmm. is so important. Because like you said, we can want people to be healthy all the day long, and we can want people to come access healthcare. But if they cannot have a smooth process to call our call center, find an appointment time that works for them, be greeted with a really high level of customer service and really be taken care of as far as um, being entered into our system and and set up as a patient. If all of that doesn't happen, if no one lays that foundation and sets up that structure, then it's not going to happen. That Mm. person is not going to have a better health outcome. All of the processes that lead up to a patient seeing a provider really have to be smooth and really strong for that to work mm. for that to work well. Yeah. It makes me think of a one organization I was working with who we, I said, you know, okay, obviously the mission is compelling. You guys are all bought in. Let's talk strategy. And I remember the leader said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Ah, that's kind of an icky. <laughs> we don't really like to, to talk that kind of terminology because we're not, we're not like a corporate business. And it's like, well, strategy isn't like a corporate business term. It's just how are we going to be very intentional and diligent behind the resources that you have so that you can maximize 
you know, the impacts that you're going to have. Right. And I think, I think people get a little freaked out by strategy because just by its nature, it's doing exactly what you just said. And it's creating and claiming your value in an unpredictable future. Mm. So that's the tricky part about strategy. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. So we have to be ready to really turn on a dime and and pivot when what we thought was going to be a good strategy is no longer working or was not as successful as we thought it was going to be. You have to be able to turn and do something new and and say, okay, sorry, everyone, this wasn't the best idea. Let's keep working to find a better one. Mm-hmm. Some people struggle with that. Uh, sometimes that's really difficult. And I think um, in a leadership role, one of the one of the really key factors that a leader has to do is prepare everyone on their team to have a really strong uh, structure for decision making, a really strong foundation for good decision making, because that's what's going to help you make those better decisions when you find out that you started off with not the best mm-hmm. one. Well, and it feels like it feels like people have a level of um, change capacity that it's it's I can I can only change so much, and I think it's because people they really value whether they'd say it or not they really they really value consistency. I show up to work and I know what's going to happen to some degree that day, even if it's a crazy hectic work environment. I at least have some variables that I know are consistent, and when change happens. Uh, Often there's this constant effect of I feel in I feel in disharmony with my circumstances. So I think something you pointed out that's really it's a great comment is understanding the the need to be agile and to be able to pivot when something isn't working. How do you do that while also it's not and I would call it even respecting your people, but but keeping people in the game? Where a great example of this, so I used to be a high school teacher and everybody knew whenever the new superintendent came in, there would be a whole slew of massive initiatives, changes, whatever, you know, and people weren't really that bought into it because we knew in a couple of years, a new superintendent's going to come in and we'll have another massive, <laughs> you know, and so we, we were in, we weren't bought in. We were in disbelief of the outcomes that our boss thought we were trying to accomplish. So Right. What does that look like? Right. So I think that's where it's really important for a leader to know his or her team members individually on a more personal level, certainly not too personal, but (laughs) on a more personal level than just their day-to-day job duties and responsibilities. Why is that important? Because you need to know what motivates people. When you know what motivates people and what drives people, they are, you are, as a leader, are more able to kind of rope them into your change initiatives. So if I know that that one of my team members is really motivated by children having access to healthcare, if we have to change something big in our clinic flow or in our workflow designs, I know I can talk about children having better access to care and children being vaccinated and children being well and that will motivate her. That will encourage her. And she'll be more likely to to really grab onto that change initiative. So again, it, it comes down to knowing your people and knowing what drives and motivates them. And then tying tying your initiatives to to everyone's certain 
preferences and motivations on an individual level. That's hard because that's a lot of people potentially, depending on how big your team is, that's a lot of people to have to know. And that's a lot of motivators that you have to learn. Um, so that requires some really intentional conversation. Mm. And, um, you know, the foundation for those conversations is really trust. So that's even another issue of building trust and rapport with your team members so that, so that you can find those things out. So it's not an easy process, but it can certainly be done. And especially if you have the end in mind, you know, that really, This is how you as a leader are going to be able to accomplish your strategic vision for your organization. You're going to realize that it pays off to know um, everyone on a more individual level and invest that time in them. It's amazing to me how many leaders, um, their, their philosophy of leadership or or rather their, their strategy is very insular and it's very much, and part of it's ego, I think, but it's very much focused on their desires and ambitions and they totally ignore the people element of the strategy. You know, I have this big strategy. Well, I'm going to need people who can execute on it. But rather than rope them in and make them part of that strategy and understand their desires and ambitions and, and really their, their equity into the brand, what happens a lot of times is, is the singular leader or the, the executive team develop the strategy and then they go to the team and they say, now you guys go do this. And it's sometimes it's very parental and it's, it's, there's a lot of frustration because it's like, why aren't you guys doing this? I just told, you know, I told you, why aren't you? And there's no real thoughtfulness behind, okay, now let's align everyone else and let's together actually execute on this. Right. Right. It's really a shame when people miss out on that really key piece of engaging people um, and just try to make a strategy happen without true engagement. I like to tell my team that I want to operationalize their capacity to care. So everyone has that capacity to Mm. care and it goes back to those motivations and those drivers and why are they here? And so when I have a plan, when I have a strategy, I I'm tapping into what they care about and I am operationalizing that to carry out my plan. So, I mean, it's, you really can't do it without the people. You can't do it without engaging your team. There's some ego driven boss out there who's saying that's a challenge. I I accept that challenge and I'll (laughs) take it on, take it on. It's not an easy one, but it pays off. Well, and, and you know, it's, it's just, I think you build such a more sustainable brand when people like where they work. And I think the fastest way to make someone like where they work is two things they're cared about. So my boss cares about what I care about and they've asked me and they're developing a personal relationship with me and I'm making a difference in those things that I care about. Right. Right. And it sounds like that's something that you've done a good job of, of just making that a priority at community clinic. I have tried obviously there are certain areas, (laughs) you know, always, always a chance to improve, but um, really in the healthcare world, that's, it's, maybe not easier to do than in some other industries, but, um, but possibly it is easier. So what, whatever we do and however well we do it actually has a direct impact in someone's life. And so, you know, um, as we were setting up, I told you at community clinic, we, we make better moms and dads and we make parents who are better able to parent their children and to provide for their families. And we make, smarter workers. We make healthier workers. We make a more productive community. And so again, in the healthcare world, it's kind of easy to 
tie all of your strategic initiatives back into um, a specific person's life and how it's how it's changed because of what you've done. That's powerful. That's really special. It's a really yeah. neat thing to be a part of. That's really powerful. Wow. And I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I just talked about this on another episode, but I was um, telling the listeners that basically Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's a pyramid. And it's basically, as you move up the pyramid, you move up in your ability to uh, be a self-sustaining, impactful person. Walking out your calling is a great way to think of it. But to get to the top of the pyramid, you have to meet the needs at the bottom of the pyramid. And the most basic need is food and shelter and then my physical safety and then my emotional safety and security. And, you know, these things that these are basic necessities for people. And I think what happens sometimes is we, especially I've seen a lot of bosses do this towards their employees where they say, you know, why is this employee not operating on the highest level while I'm also paying them? nine dollars an hour <laughs> right you know and so they're there I, I the reason i really resonate with what you're saying is because you're talking about what you're talking about is providing the quality of life at that most basic level so that moms and dads can go on and be really great moms and dads it's hard to do that when you're not a healthy functioning person right right and you know um Something that you just said makes me think of staff. We have to do the same thing for our staff. So for those employees that are making, um, you know, a lower wage, um, certainly at community clinic, we try to pay a living wage. We want people to be able to be successful and thrive in their lifetime um, and in their career at community clinic. But those opportunities for employee health and wellness and the opportunities to provide those basic needs for employees are also really, really important. So it's hard to ask someone else to participate in a process that makes someone else healthy when they themselves are not healthy. So we really try at Community Clinic, and I really try with my team to focus on employee health and wellness um, and making sure that they have the resources that they need, either through Community Clinic or through another provider to to live their healthiest life and their most productive life. Because again, in the end, that's going to trickle down. Um, that's going to have a domino effect. And then our whole community is going to have a healthier life mm -hmm. because of that. It reminds me of um, JB Hunt did a massive uh, leadership development program. And I was part of this with my last firm, but their big passion was how drivers it's notorious for drivers to have a really low retention rate mm -hmm. in the business. And J.B. Hunt, the COO, was talking about he was talking on the phone with one of his drivers and the driver was so far in debt. I mean, didn't know where the next meal was coming and his heart just broke for the guy and was thinking, we have to we have to do something for our drivers. And what was happening in a lot of offices was the the manager of different um, terminals where the drivers would get their would get their their loads and ship out. The conversation was very much, you know, hey, take the shipment get it out of here, make it happen, you know, get in, get out, no personal relationship, nothing whatsoever. And so they did this massive reorganization of how they train their managers and how do they talk to their drivers to help them understand that your drivers need, first of all, they need some basic things like, you know, human dignity and respect, but also, you know, if you could be a manager who you really deeply care about their financial well-being and what's happening for them and, you know, where, you know, where are they emotionally and mentally and, these things are important. You know, it's important for every employee, I think. Yes, absolutely. And an engaged and motivated employee that feels 
that they are truly cared for is is going to be a better employee at the end of the day. It it will, but it feels like a lot of bosses don't want to pay the price for that. Meaning, I, you know, I there was one boss who was like, "So you want me to actually like." have conversations with my people every yeah. week. Yeah. Like you really have to talk to them. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, is that, is that really so hard? And he was like, I'm just, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to, and I was like, I just don't know if that works anymore. I don't know. Maybe it did years ago. I don't know, but. I'm with you. I, I don't think, I don't think it works. Um, when you, when you don't care about the people that you're asking to execute your plan, you're not going to get the best product. So it's hard working with people and developing people and getting to know people is hard. So I think that's what turns a lot of people off and, and makes them not want to invest mm. that time and energy. Um, it's hard on, it's hard to have those conversations. It's hard to learn about other people, but then certainly if that person is carrying a burden, now you're carrying it too. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really hard. It, it's just not an easy thing. And I think that's why a lot of people just don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, you know, like I said a few minutes ago, it's really worth the time. It's really worth the investment. Well, it's, it's like once you've seen the results from it, like once you're on the other side of it, it's like, oh my gosh, there's no other way to do business. Right. You know, when we talk about, an engaged employee, and we actually can tie that to the customer experience or can tie it to the direct revenue. But it's it's like three or four steps down from the actual development of that person. And I think that's why I think people sometimes they struggle to make that connection. But also, I, I think some people, they say they want that, but they don't, not even just with their own time, they don't want to pay for that. Meaning, you know, it's like the boss I was talking to who uh, he was saying, you know, I can't seem to get my employees really engaged here. And I said, well, what, what do you, first question I asked was, what are you paying them? He says, oh, I, I pay them all minimum wage. And I said, well, there, there has to be levels of, you have to understand here that what you're willing to pay for is also what you're going to get in return. And it's, it's a bit unfair to expect the incredibly engaged employee with these phenomenal results. If you don't even think that their talent is worth more than, more than minimum wage. Right. Right. And that's why I, I love talking about a living wage mm -hmm. and that's, that's above and beyond the minimum wage. Um, when, especially, you know, in the healthcare field, we, we think a lot about the things that happen outside of the walls of a clinic that affect a person's health. And we call them social determinants of health. And certainly socioeconomic status is one of those social determinants of health and a living wage is going to allow people to have more secure housing, to have more reliable transportation, to have healthier foods. And ultimately guess what? They're going to be a healthier person. They're going to be a better employee. They're going to be a more engaged employee. So um, yeah, that living wage versus minimum wage is a really important yeah. thing to keep in mind. Well, if I can, you know, if we're going to get really feisty, if I can ask you a, a question, what do you think about universal basic income? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't kinda, given it kinda, much thought, to be honest with you. That's, honestly, right now. that's kind of how I think too, is I'm like, I don't really know. It's it's hard. I feel like it's it's obviously politically charged, right? Definitely, definitely. And so you know, I don't know if you're <laughs> feeling, yeah, I really want to dive in this or not. I, I think for me, here, here's why I ask: is because literally my entire professional career, I've been, I've been, you know, no, I don't see how that works 
financially or economically. But I had someone on my podcast who we were talking about this conversation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and she flipped it on me and she said, well, so don't you want people's basic needs to be taken care of? And I, so they can go on and be productive citizens and what have you. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I mean, I do. And so now I don't know. And so that's right. why I asked is, yeah, I know, do want that. And I, yeah. I do feel that everyone deserves that. And that is, um, certainly having all of their needs met is a very, very important thing. Um, as far as how, how you get there, hmm. I think there are probably many different ways. Um, that again, honestly, I haven't, haven't given a lot of thought to. <laughs> and then, and then something else I'd like to ask you about, this one's not political. I feel like, and I, I'm just curious how you rally support in the community because often what I see happen, especially in some, in some kind of service to someone who's in need, let's say their lower socioeconomic status, there is this tension that I find in people between it's basically around how deserving are they meaning is it their own fault and thus they are they're less deserving of help or you know is it they were dealt a bad hand and so let's let's help people and it's it's this concept of dignity it's how do you right. how do you give someone it, it it's 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 like i was doing an initiative uh for the homeless in chicago and i kept saying they i said well they 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 and the person leading it said, Blake, how do we, how do we change they to we right. rather than, you know, that mental, um, so I don't really know what my question is. I don't know. I just, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. So, um, I think it's really important to, to talk about we, um, I feel like empathy is, is really the answer that you're asking for. Um, I feel like building empathy m- makes you part of the we. And, um, so talking to people who live in different circumstances than you do, talking to people who deal with a different set of factors and challenges and barriers in their life every day than what you and I may deal with, um, that really helps you build empathy. And, um, that makes you, that reminds you that everyone is human and that everyone is deserving of quality care, you know, going back to healthcare, mm-hmm. um, and affordable care and accessible care. Um, empathy, I really think is the, is the key factor. That's also a hard thing to do. That's, that's not easy. And you really have to have a relationship and have a foundation of trust before anyone that looks or lives in a different situation than you do before they tell you anything of true significance. You're going to have to do a lot of foundational trust building to get there. But I think then when you do, um, Again, it doesn't really matter how they got there. Maybe it's situational poverty. Maybe it's generational. Um, but they're still a person and you learn to see them as a person that is deserving of all of the opportunities that you are as well. Mm. Empathy is not really a, um, <laughs> it's not the most corporate of, of qualities. And in fact, I have found myself, uh, in corporate environments where I talk about empathy and I can see people, uh, almost clam up yeah. in the sense of well, yeah. that's not a very that's not a very sexy term. I mean, I, let's talk about strategic thinking, you know. Right. Or and and I I love how you articulated that. And I and it sounds like empathy is something that you use in, even in your own leadership, especially as you talked about learning your people. Um, 
does it do you agree that it feels like empathy gets a bad rap sometimes or, or are you in an environment where you can really nurture that or talking a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think it does get a bad rap again because it's it's hard to do and it might involve you sitting in a room across from someone that you have never talked to before, someone that you don't really know what to say to. Um, but I truly feel like um, empathy should be more of a corporate term. Empathy is really the key around human-centered design. And so when you're doing strategic planning initiatives, you really want to plan those to have the greatest impact. And what better way to than to plan them around the people that you're going to serve? So, um, yeah. It was, even listening to that, though, and I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because strategy at scale, it feels like it becomes extremely challenging for some organizations. And I think... I think it's for two reasons. It's the inability to pivot. We're so large. And so, you know, we have this strategic plan that's for the next two years. And even though we know six months in that it's actually, I, I, you know what, now that I think about it, I was working with one company and they realized from the get go that their strap plan that they had gotten wasn't going to work. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, well, we paid for it. So, so we'll just keep it. And I just Might thought, well. wow, wow, that is amazing. But but especially the people side that you're talking about, it's interesting how, especially at scale, how the executive team will talk about what is how a strategy is going to impact the frontline employee. And then what's funny is six months later, the frontline employee is like, why did they do this? Why did they do this? They this never is, asked me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how does that, yeah, how does that disconnect really, happen? Um, I think that's one of the really, really uh, important things to remember when strategic planning and again, in this concept of human-centered design, most often, if not always, the best solutions to the issues that you're solving for lie with the people that are experiencing those issues, not the people that are sitting in the corporate boardroom. Mm. So you've got to find that out. If you want to make the best plan, you have to ask them what's the best plan. Um, far too often, you know, e even... Um, even in my organization, we we catch ourselves saying, wait a second, we haven't asked a patient how this will be perceived. We haven't asked our staff, our clinical staff, how this is going to work for them. Let's make sure, let's let's loop them in, let's bring them in and talk to them about this and and make sure that this is truly the best idea. And when we do that, when we when we remember to include them, we're reminded that it's not the best idea. We have we had no idea what the best idea was, but they do because they're facing those issues and those challenges every day, and they're going to have the best solutions. Well, and it sounds like you you first of all, it really sounds like you understand culture really well, because I also what I see is in some toxic cultures not not only do they avoid doing that, but when they finally do, there is a fear of being honest. Where mm -hmm. if I tell you what the problem is. Uh, it actually just it actually just happened with a local organization where someone was asked, uh, and I was talking to the person who was asked, the um, middle manager basically. He was asked, "What's the problem here?" And he said, "Well, this is what the problem is." And they told him, "Well, then you're obviously not a team player here. You're obviously not going the direction we want to go because we disagree with what you see as the issue. So we're going to let you go." And so in that case, you know the the takeaway is. Well, I, I better be a yes man, right? And, and you know, hey, whatever you guys think is best, that's what we should do. Rather than developing a culture where we can have open and honest dialogue. Right. 
Um, yeah. So I heard a speaker recently say that excellence is facilitated by the inclusion of many diverse perspectives. Hmm. And um, I love that quote. And I, I, you know, that's so true. Um, you have to create an environment where all of those diverse perspectives are accepted. So you really have to create a safe, a safe place, right? An emotionally safe place for all of the ideas to be spoken without judgment, <clears throat> without um, any repercussions. Um, and one of the, one of the ways that I like to do that with my team is we say the bad idea first. We say the worst idea. So when we're trying to kind of create a new strategy or a new solution, we say, okay, what's the worst thing that we could do here? And we talk about it. And it kind of usually gets, you know, pretty funny and um, kind of a lighthearted conversation. And everyone adds on, you know, things that, that make that bad idea even worse. And then guess what? You've said the worst idea. Every other idea from here on out is going to be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so again, it kind of, it's a good icebreaker warm up and uh, really gets people engaged and creates an atmosphere where they, where those diverse perspectives are accepted and their ideas are taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like you've married that with empathy in the sense of, um, you obviously really care about your team members' perspectives getting a little less on the leadership side of things and more on the running an organization at scale side of it. Something that I, we've mentioned a couple of times and I really want to hone in on it, the ability to pivot and be agile at, especially for a large organization, you guys have 14, 12 locations. We have 13 locations. 13. So I was on both sides of it yeah, right there. Yeah, you were right there. 13 <laughs> locations. How many employees? Close to 300. And then serving how many people? around 38,000 patients. And so, I mean, you definitely meet the, the description of any organization at scale. And I, it, what you said was at the very start of our conversation really piqued my interest because it's so countercultural to what I see happen. And I already, you know, told the story of the guys like, well, we paid for it. So we're stuck with it. I, I really want to know how you practically, how you develop strategy and how do you, how you're, iterating it and pivoting on it because that's that's not the norm for larger organizations it's it's we know what needs to happen but we're going to take we're going to take another year to actually do that and by then whatever solution you needed it's no longer timely or right you know so right. it's not even applicable anymore um it's taken me a long time to get to this point but i i really rely on my team for that strategic planning um, I bring them together really often. And so, you know, even, no matter what site they work at, we dedicate a large chunk of time once a month for sure. We have about a four hour meeting once a month. And that sounds, you know, on the surface horrible because who wants to sit in a four hour <laughs> meeting, but it's, it's not really a meeting. It's just more like a conversation. Um, and again, I've, I've worked really hard to develop empathy building and human centered design principles and innovation. And I've created that safe environment where all ideas are accepted. So, you know, really I'm, I see myself as the facilitator of their conversation. And Mm. so, you know, my team members really engage with each other. They talk with each other more often than our four hour long conversation every month. Um, they have, I've set up an email, a group email address just for them to bounce ideas off of each other. I'm not, I don't receive those emails. So 
you know, um, they can say whatever they want and <laughs> uh, really use that as, you know, kind of a sounding board just with, with their peers. Um, we've implemented some job shadowing uh, procedures as well, just, you know, r- routines, really, I hate to say procedures, but it's just, it's really a routine. And everyone has gotten to the point where they enjoy it and appreciate it, but they go spend half a day with a manager of a different department mm-hmm. and they learn more about what their work entails and what their team does and how their teams could collaborate more closely. And um, again, share perspectives with each other as far as, well, when you do this here, in a centralized call center and, and you never see a patient, here's how it looks in my clinic where I'm face-to-face with patients every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've created just a really strong network. So again, when we come together, I'm really just kind of facilitating their conversation and then kind of synthesizing their ideas and what they have found to be best practices at their organizations. And so, I mean... Really, they do all the hard work for me. Well, and I just I love how simple you make it sound. And I know it's I know it's not. I know it's taken. You know, I'm sure it has taken a lot of work, and especially maybe even for your team members who they they haven't come from an environment where this was the norm to sort of rewire and help people understand this this will work. So I know you've put a lot of work into it, but everything you said sounds so practical and doable, and yet. There are companies at scale who everyone, people are siloed and it, and something else you said that I think was really magical from like a leadership perspective. You said, you know, my job's just to facilitate. And it reminds me of good to great where he talks about, you know, the levels of leadership, but he talks about how the worst leaders are the ones who are at the top who are sort of doling out their strategy. You know, you are my minions to do, you know, now you go do. And I love how you've, you've sort of flipped that, that hierarchical, pyramid in the sense of like, I'm really trying to, you know, empower you all. Let's, let's make something happen together. It's, it's just different. I think it's special. I want to tell you a little secret that has made this, I feel like a more successful initiative for me. And I think that it's important going back to those listeners that you mentioned at the beginning that, um, that may not know, um, exactly how they fit in or what they're, <laughs> what, um, Exactly what they can do, right? So um, I started as a manager. I began my career at Community Clinic as a manager. And so while moving from a, a peer position to a higher level of leadership is a difficult thing to do, it's also really brought me very valuable perspective because I'm able to say, when I was a manager, this is what I wanted, or this is what was good for me, or this was what worked for me. So I would just really want to encourage all the listeners um, to remember remember where you came from. Um, remember your roots, so to speak. Um, and even if you dar- didn't start in a lower level position in your current organization, um, at some point or another, we've all been there, right? We all had a starting point somewhere in our career. So it's been really helpful to, for me to always remember what was good for me when I was in that role mm-hmm. and what would have helped me when I was doing what they do each and every day. And, um, I feel like it makes me just, I, it's empathy, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. empathy. It's, um, thinking from someone else's perspective and putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, it's, I think it's more than that. And I don't know 
I don't know you well enough to know what it is for you specifically. I, I would guess it's probably some of your values and how you choose to view people. And maybe it is empathy because I've, I've also been in the conversation with the executive team where, uh, they're complaining about the complaints mm-hmm. that the frontline or the manager is having. And that there's, and they're almost, they're pretty much discounting um, it in the sense of, well, I was in their job and it wasn't that hard. I was in their job and it wasn't. And so, and it's, but at this point, it's become sort of like this badge of honor. It's ego, really. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I've been, I've done all of that and I did it no problem. Why are they complaining? Can they just shut up and do their job? And so, um, maybe it is that empathy piece. Yeah. Um, because you framed it very differently than how I've heard it from some people. I think, um, again, empathy does have a big, a big part in that. And ego is a very dangerous part of that. Very dangerous. So then maybe it's worth it. I, I'd, I'd love to get your perspective. The person who is unempathetic or ego driven, which chances are they probably aren't self-aware enough to realize that you would that. be talking to them. <laughs> I was in a meeting yesterday and I said, they said, well, how do you know the person who's ego driven? And I said, it's usually the person who says, who opens with, Hey, I'm really self-aware, but you know, this is what's going on. And so what advice would you give to the leader who let's say they have an inkling of maybe I am ego driven, or maybe I am unempathetic or could grow in my EQ or my emotional capacity. What advice do you have? Go do someone else's job. Go do it. If, you know, in a healthcare sitting setting, I would tell that person, go sit at the front desk and greet our patients and check them in and verify all the information that you have to verify and click all of the buttons that you have to click and collect all the copays that you have to collect and do it all with a smile on your face where while there might be, you know, a screaming child in the waiting room and a line of uh, six other people that are waiting to check in. And then 12 more people who are waiting to check out, <laughs> you do it, you try it. Uh-huh. Or again, in my setting, go answer a phone, uh, go, go answer our phones and talk to our patients and hear about what they're going through and try to find an appointment for them that is accessible for them and that is going to set them up for success. So talk to them about, do you have transportation? Do you have reliable transportation? Are you going to be able to make it here at this time? Are you sure it's okay? Have you asked off of work? You know, go through all of those Hmm. things that kind of the frontline people in your organization go through each and every day with the the best attitude and, you know, the best of intentions. Try it for yourself. Hmm. And um, see if you don't have a different perspective after the end of that day. It makes me think of that show, Undercover Boss. Exactly. And it was like, I never knew how hard this was. (laughs) Exactly. It just gives a whole different perspective. And I mean, if it doesn't change your mind after that, um, you've really got some more self-reflection you need to do and self-awareness that you are going to have to increase to be successful. Well, we are out of time today. How would you like people to follow up with both Community Clinic and also with you uh, what's the best way for people to do that? Sure. So yeah, um, communityclinicnwa.org is our website. Um, you can contact us and um, we've got an email list that you can sign up for in about a week. Fingers crossed, knock on wood, we are going live with a new texting platform. So you can co- contact Community Clinic by text 855-438-2280. And um, ask for Amanda. Be happy to visit with anyone anytime. 
Okay. Well, Amanda, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Blake. For our listeners, let me know what you think about the episode, Blake at goodadvicecoaching.com, and we will catch you next week. See ya.